Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Susan Salinger. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Susan attended UCLA to study English. After graduation, she worked alongside her husband, Fred, for 25 years at their production company, Salinger Films, which produced corporate training and development films distributed worldwide. Today, at age 79, Susan lives in Northern California to be near her incredible family, which includes her two daughters, four grandchildren, a cat named Max, and a dog named J.D. Salinger. (laughs) When she is not speaking about her book or spending time with family and friends, you will find Susan powerlifting to stay in shape. In the episode, Susan shares how men and women differ in their approach to getting a diagnosis and treatment, why women often hesitate to get a second opinion, top questions to ask to prevent misdiagnosis or unnecessary medication, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Susan. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson certified nutrition coach and your host of the health investment podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week I interview experts and share no nonsense research backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I have never spoken to somebody about this topic. I don't even think I knew this topic was an issue until your... I don't know. What do you call her? Publicist or podcast person reached out to me right? Yeah, and said, this could be a great topic. And I agree. So I can't wait to dive in to all of your knowledge and wisdom. Um, But I'd love if you could start off by telling us a bit about your background and then specifically what prompted you to write your book, Sidelined. 
Well, I've been a writer most of my life. My husband and I uh, were in the film business. We did training films for business and industry, and I wrote the scripts. And then after I retired, I went back to school, just took some anthropology classes and got very interested in women's health and medical anthropology. And then more or less, you know, simultaneously, I guess. Well, years and years and years ago, before college, actually, I had a very unfortunate experience where I agreed to a surgery that I didn't need. And I was right. I, I, I agreed to it. It was exploratory surgery. And I, in fact, I got scared. So I insisted it be done sooner rather than later. And then, of course, as I said, they found nothing. And I was really ashamed and angry at myself for agreeing to it in the first place. And then when I wasn't, then I, when I went back to school, I learned that this happens. I'm not the only woman this has happened to. And I got very interested in how women make medical decisions, you know, especially me, to be honest. <laughs> so I decided to, to investigate a little bit. And I ended up talking to about 40 or 50 women. And I, I was very interesting, all of whom had different diseases, but they all had five or six behaviors in common, regardless of their particular disease. And many of them had also... Uh, agreed to things that they wished they hadn't. And so that was really the the genesis, I guess is the word I want of the book. And I kind of just went from there. Um, did a lot of research. It did a lot of interviews, as I said, and the book took off. It took about 10 years to write because there's a lot of research in it. As I wanted to be sure that the women I talked with, that, that what they had told me wasn't backed up by research. I, maybe it was just the individual women. I mean, I had no way of knowing. And it turned out there was a ton of research, which is why it took 10 years, because I had to wade through it. So right. wow. here, we are. here we are. It's funny you say that, how uh, you had this self-interest at first, because I feel that way with this podcast of I love sharing everybody's wisdom with my audience, but also selfishly, I feel like I get to talk to world experts on different things. And if I have something I'm curious about in my own life, I can find an expert and then I want to know know, for myself. Yeah. I think self-interest is a terrific motivator. It's vastly underrated. (laughs) I agree. I agree. I'm glad we, we both agree on that. And it's funny you say that because I think I have understood, and I think this is also backed by research, that women are much more proactive about their health than men, and they work at it diligently. So what do you mean that they have trouble getting effective health care and treatments? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. We are proactive about our health. We do go to the doctor more than men do. We keep up with all our tests. In fact, that was one of, that is one of the major conflicts of the book because at the same time, we make decisions where we really do ourselves a disservice. Uh, just for example, the first chapter talks about how women put themselves last. Um, in fact, women were given a, by researchers, they were given a list of five things to prioritize. You know, what would they take care of first? Well, first, we would take care of our children. You'll like this next one. Secondly, we take care of our pets, which really surprised <laughs> me. I know, isn't that funny? Third, we take care of our elderly parents or family members, but I guess our dog's more important or our pet iguana. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> 
Fourth, we take care of our significant others. And last, we take care of ourselves. And that's true. Although we do go to the doctor more than men do, we go with our parents, we go with our kids, and we don't always follow through for ourselves. And I think that that's, that's really what I meant. We has a, I mean, just to give you a rough overview, but it answers your question. Not only do we put ourselves last, but we are, we hesitate to get second opinions more than men do. We describe our symptoms differently from men, and that impacts our diagnoses. We do different things that really interfere with our ability to get effective health care. We just we don't do what we need to do to take really good care of ourselves. And I think that that's a really important statement. <laughs> Yeah. Just to kind of synthesize and see if I'm understanding this correctly. So let's say a woman does go to the doctor and she gets some diagnosis and needs further treatment. In her mind, she has all of these other things buzzing around that she also needs to take care of. And mm-hmm. she likely will put those things first before her treatment. But Correct. let's say the rare occasion, the man goes to the doctor and he gets a diagnosis and needs a treatment, is he more likely to get that immediately and pursue it and get second opinions because he's maybe not as much as the woman kind of prioritizing all of those other buckets? I th- Yes. And I'm going to say, I think so. Honestly, I did not research what men do. Anything I know about men came up in the research that I did about the women. But yes, that's my understanding. When men go to the doctor, they, they look at the doctor as a, a, how do I say it, a co-problem solver. I'm having this problem and we're in it together. The woman, women, and this is, of course, it differs, but, you know, each woman is different. But generally speaking, as a group, women tend to to see the doctor as the, particularly many years ago, but even still in, as the professional. And so many women said to me, well, no, I didn't get a second opinion. After all, he's the professional. Who am I to question him? Well, based on my personal experience, as well as some of the research I read, Everybody needs to be questioned. You know, I I think one of the problems for women is that we don't realize just how tricky diagnoses can be. There's about, gosh, I would say between 20 and 40,000 different diseases out there, many of which have the same symptoms. So, I mean, sure, if you break your leg and the x-ray shows that your leg is broken, well, that is certainly the source of your leg pain. You don't have to go to medical school for that. But on the other hand, if you go in and you're tired and you're, you've lost your appetite and you're feeling kind of depressed and just down, I mean, those symptoms can fit 30 of the 30,000 of the 40,000 diseases out there. And it's for the doctor, it can be like looking for a needle in a haystack. Then you, before you uh, agree to a serious treatment, or in my case, a surgery, you really want to double check and make sure that you are getting an accurate diagnosis, as otherwise your treatment won't be, won't be accurate. So right. I think that there's, there's many reasons that women in particular don't get second opinions. I know that myself, I feel as if I don't want to offend the doctor or is that something that women tend to think of? I don't, I don't want to offend you and say that I think you're wrong by getting a second opinion. But Out of all the women I interviewed, 90% said that. And you know, think about it as, as women, as girls, we're taught to play nice. We're taught not to be rude. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And it's, it is, it can be awkward. 
my experience and the research, I mean, it shows me that many doctors welcome a second opinion because diagnosis can be tricky. And you don't want to give somebody surgery if they really have something else and don't need it. I mean, so it, it, diagnoses are just so difficult for, for, for the doctor in the sense that um, particularly women with autoimmune diseases, because a lot of those symptoms mimic one another. And a lot of those diseases don't have a definitive test. It's not like that broken leg. The, 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 there's no, not a blood test that's necessar- that is necessarily accurate for so many of the diseases. And so that particularly people with chronic or uh, autoimmune diseases really need to get second opinions, if not third opinions. Uh, it can take about four years to get an accurate diagnosis for a chronic or an autoimmune disease. Uh, and so, and most patients see about four different doctors. So it's important. It's really important. I guess from my perspective, I would hope that if the doctor felt shaky on the diagnosis, they would just suggest that I go get another opinion, but I don't think yeah. that frequently ha- happens, well, right? You I have to advocate. It okay. does. I've had, I've had several doctors say to me, you know, I really don't know. Why don't we, let's go to a specialist or whatever. Okay. Um, so I think it depends. I think. It but depends. if they don't say that, then advocate for yourself. Absolutely. And that is the message of the book. Truly, it's your body. And you know, your. I mean, I knew that I didn't need that surgery. I had switched medications. I started getting some common side effects from the new medication. I know my body, it reacts very, very oddly to any medication. And I knew it. And, but instead of advocating for myself, I subjected myself to surgery, to anesthesia, to whatever diseases were rampant in the hospital at that particular time. I mean, what a dumb decision. <laughs> it's just like, really, Sue? You know? Right. Yeah, so, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I thought so, because I was very surprised when I met other women that had made such similar decisions to mine. Right. Again, speaking back to our self-interest conversation, as you're talking, I'm, of course, processing this through my own lens. Of course. And I broke my leg in February of this year, so about six months ago. And so it was definitely broken. And I, they told me I needed surgery. I didn't ask for a second opinion, but I was in the ER. It was this whirlwind. And that yeah. was, I think, justified. Yeah, um, but then in the follow-up, I remember just having questions. You know, they tell you all these things to look out for when it's healing and if it's red, if it's warm. If I previously had a history of an infection from a wound, so I know these things to look out for, and I was extra cautious. And we have Kaiser in California, and so it can be great or not as great. And we have this messaging system with the doctor. So you can't just call their office. You go through this app of messaging. And so I had messaged the surgeon a couple of times, and then a few weeks later, another question cropped up and I was talking to my husband. I said, I don't know. I feel bad. Should I message him? And he's like, dude, that's his job. Message him. And his response was just obviously send him a message. And my first response was, Oh, I've already sent him two messages. I feel bad. I don't want to bother him. And, you know, just thinking of this, I, I think it speaks to a lot of what you're saying. And I ended up messaging him and he was great. He got back to me very quickly and everything was resolved. But had my husband not said that, I might not have sent the message. Well, something similar happened to my husband when he broke his, I think it was his wrist. This was also a while back. But I guess a resident came in and 
put a sling or some a ca- something on him, and it was it hurt him more than the original pain. And he kept saying to the doctor, "This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong." And the doctor said, "No, it's right. It's right. It's right." And so he we we as it happens of a. Uh, parent of a my a friend of my daughter's is an orthopedist and he was at the hospital so we asked to see him and he came in and he said oh my god who the hell did that to you and he took it I mean you know so you really have to advocate for yourself and you, you really, know your body best right even though you're not right. a physician correct you know if something feels weird and that's when it's important to speak up and I'm absolutely I'm and telling myself this <laughs> like, Brooke, yeah, speak, up. speak up speak up speak up that is as I said earlier that's truly the message of the book nobody knows your body like you do and I want to keep repeating that because it's it's just it's true you're yeah. in charge um how did you find the women you interviewed and put your different focus groups oh, together I went on the internet and yeah. I went to the various support groups and I said, you know, I'm a writer and I'm looking for somebody to talk with that has endometriosis or lupus or breast cancer or whatever it happened to be. And I got a lot of really lovely responses. And then I went to the people. So I met them, you know, on the Internet for, you know, we introduced ourselves. And then I went to their homes. I like interviewing people in their where they live. And it was they were just so open and so generous and so supportive. And then I wanted some geographical diversity. So I put together two focus groups. And for that, I just threw money at the problem and hired a facilitator because I didn't know how to do that, you know. So that was really interesting. And I had two different groups of women from various geographical places across the country. Um, wow. it was, what I learned from the focus groups, and I don't know if this was true with the individual women I, I talked with, but in the focus groups, most of the women... I think like 80% of them had never talked to anybody else about their illness except their doctor. And they were so grateful to talk to each other because the illness didn't matter. We were talking about their behavior, how, how, how it felt to be ill. So it doesn't matter what you have, you know, sick mm-hmm. is sick. And it was fascinating. They were so happy to, ha- to find other, other women who were experiencing similar things. Mm. Right. I realized how lonely illness can be. You got it. That's my other message. I want to encourage conversation about illness among women because it's too lonely otherwise. And you you deny yourself support if you don't tell anybody. You don't give people a chance to go there, there. And sometimes that just really helps, you know. Right. I was thinking that similarly when I had broken my leg and nobody really understands what you're going through, you know, right. my husband right. was the closest person and he was a saint and doing everything around the house, Right. but nobody gets what it's like when you don't have a working leg anymore and you're using the crutches and maybe somebody had that experience before, but it yeah. feels very lonely and isolating going through yes. it and frustrating because you don't have this limb that you relied on two days ago, right. your whole world right. turns upside down. And I was thinking how nice it would be if there was a community of people who had recently broken their leg and I could pop in there and talk to them. There should almost be an app for that, right? We have dating apps. I agree. Should almost be like a swipe right, swipe left, you know, depending on your symptoms and let's connect with people across the country who are going through the same thing. And those crutches aren't a joke. I've tried them. I mean, they're not. You develop your biceps. They really do. They're terrifying. And I remember this one night I was 
going to the bathroom and you of course have to use the crutches right and a crutch caught on the edge of my dresser and I kind of fell forward on my splints and then it definitely jostled around in there. So of course I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I got this surgery. Now I've just ruined the whole surgery. I mean, there's every minute something happens, you know, it's just minute by minute and it's, it's challenging. It's a struggle and you definitely don't take your legs for granted as much as you used to after you go through something like that. It's true. I think you stop taking your body for granted, you know, really. Yeah, for sure. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. Well, you mentioned there were some commonalities in traits that the women shared. Did you say there were five? I think there's six, actually. Oh, wow. Okay, six. So can you share? Yeah, it's fun. That's interesting. The first one is that most women put themselves last. I mean, that's why the airlines tell you, oh, my cat's so cute. That's why (laughs) the airlines tell you to put your own mask on before you put on your child's. I mean, it's don't don't put yourself last. That's message number one. And then the second chapter or the second commonality is that we do hesitate to get second opinions. And there's so many things that can go wrong in a diagnosis. And I just want to, as a sidebar for a minute, there was a study done where uh, a group, two groups of doctors were given two different vignettes. Uh, the first vignette, they aimed the vignettes because towards a cardiac diagnosis, that's what the researchers were aiming for. And the first group of doctors were given, you know, this vignette. And I think almost all of the people in, in a, they, they gave a, how do I say this? So almost all of the doctors gave the very, the fictitious patients a, a diagnosis of cardiac, just what the researchers wanted. The second vignette, which they gave to the second group of doctors, mentioned the word stress. As soon as stress was introduced, only 15% of the fictitious women patients received a cardiac diagnosis. So there is still, even to this day, although the, the study was a while back, but there is still gender bias. It's much better than it used to be. Don't misunderstand me. But we do have to be careful. You don't want to be diagnosed with stress when you're possibly having a heart attack or may have a heart attack. So I think that that's a very important caveat to the second opinion business. You, It's really important. And then the other thing is I noticed is that most a lot of the women felt so much shame around being ill, and that really surprised me. 
uh, we, they were ashamed mostly because they couldn't fulfill their responsibilities. They, they, they felt bad about themselves and they blamed themselves for being ill. So many of the women said to me, well, you know, I've just been under so much stress and I just, I obviously can't manage my stress and that's why I got sick. And truthfully, that may be, but it also may not be. Illness is random. And there are plenty of people that, I mean, we're all under stress and some of us get sick and some of us don't. I mean, not everybody that smokes get, gets lung cancer and not everybody that drinks gets cirrhosis of the liver. I mean, it just, it depends. Certainly lung cancer, you know, you contribute to it if you smoke a lot, but it isn't necessarily accurate that you're going to get it. So I think that, that it's really important not to blame yourself. And I think that when you do, it interferes with your ability to heal because now you're stressed because you think you're such a screw up because you can't manage your stress. So right. one thing leads to the other. Right. And then the, the the fourth thing I found, and tell me if I'm going on too long, but I love it. No, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a here for this. This is helpful. Well, that's, Good. Okay. Well, the other thing I found is that women talk to, to doctors differently from how men do, and that does affect our diagnosis. For example, men are much more succinct. They, as I said earlier, they go in, listen, you know, we've got a problem. I have a sore throat. I, I go in, I have a sore throat, and I, as a result, I can't take care of my kids. I feel under the, I mean, I go through the whole litany of everything that affects me because of this ridiculous sore throat. I mean, that's a silly example, but you get what I mean. And I think that what happens, I've, I've learned from that what happens is that we get, that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it is a reason why women get a more, psycho, more psychological diagnoses than men do. Because by the time I'm done telling them how stressed I am, the physical symptom of the sore throat can easily get lost in in this morass of emotions that I've just dumped on some on a, on the poor doctor's head. Um, so I think that that is something that women need to know. In fact, this was interesting too. Um, to, there were letters written by cancer patients, men and women, and the letters were given to, I guess, doctors or inter, I don't know what they were. But in any event, the, the, the doctors were able to tell which group of letters was written by men and which, you know, 60 or 70 percent, they could tell which were women and which were men because the women's were so much more emotional and so much more interpersonal. And the men's were much drier, succinct, more technical. So I think the conversation styles definitely have a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. And then the other th couple of things I found, well, one was to, is just kind of fun. Um, we think we talk about our emotions so much when we go in and ask for a diagnosis and, and relate our symptoms. But after we get the diagnosis, and this, this happened particularly with women who had been had hysterectomies, we don't ask about how the how the physical relief, how the surgery or the medications, whatever, are going to affect our emotions. We forget just how tightly we're so anxious for physical relief that we forget just how tightly our minds and bodies are connected. And you'll love these next two things I'm going to tell you. <laughs> these are my two favorite things in the book. But there was there was one they were talking about how much your body can affect your mind. So the researchers took two groups of students and they put one group in one room and gave them iced coffee. They put the second group in the second room and gave them warm coffee. 
And then they gave them a script of a fictitious person and asked the people, you know, what did they think of the person? Did they like the person? Did they not like the person? So the group with the warm coffee judged the person to be so much nicer than the people with the cold coffee. And that's, I mean, really, your body just affects how you think. And it's fascinating. And then just that to is reduce, interesting. Oh, it's so fun. I love this stuff. And then the, on the other side of it, your mind really affects your body. They different different study, different researchers, but they put one group of students in the first room and asked them to write out a time, you know, just on a paragraph or two about when they had been socially accepted. And then the other group, they asked them to write about a time when they had been socially rejected. Well, the people that had been socially rejected <laughs> judged the temperature of the room to be five degrees colder than the people who had been socially accepted. So how we feel and how we think and what we think, they're just so connected that you have to think to yourself when you take medication, when you agree to a surgery, how is this going to affect me physically and emotionally? Because I think that we're all so anxious for physical relief so we can go back to our caretaking jobs that we forget that it, that it, I mean, when you have a hysterectomy that affects your hormones, of course, it's going to make you depressed. Mm-hmm. So, so many of the women, for example, that I talked with were ashamed of themselves, first of all, for needing the hysterectomy, but secondly, because the surgery made them, their hormones were all a jumble and it made them wow. feel depressed. So I think that that's, that's important. Yeah. And then last but not least is that we, women are prescribed a lot more drugs than, than men are. And we have to be careful about that. Um, oh, wow. I, I hardly, you know, at the back of my book, there's a, a resource list. And I, I think everybody needs to do research on their diagnosis, on the medications they've been prescribed. And at the back of the book, I've really done your thinking for you. Just go to the part that says drugs and it'll tell you where to look up what you've got, what, what you're taking, or if you want to know how to research your doctor. Again, it's, it's an important resource for you because I think that to really be in charge of yourself, you have to definitely have to research. Um Right. There's just so much. I don't even know where to stop. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's all fascinating to me. And I think what I'm gleaning from this is just so much knowledge and knowledge is empowering. So I broke my leg in February, knock on wood, something like that isn't going to happen again anytime soon. But the next time I have some type of medical issue, I think just after having this conversation, I'll go into it with a bit of a different mindset. Knowing, yeah, knowing, okay, Brooke, you may feel hesitant to ask this, but do it. You know, the the guy out there in the waiting room is going to ask. So you ask right. too. Right. No, it's true. In fact, it went, it's fascinating because it, there was somebody said that we research, takes, we research a new car that we're going to get for about eight hours. We research um, a new job that we're thinking of taking for 10 hours. And we never bother to research the surgery that, that we're about to undergo or the surgeon who's going to perform form it. Mm. And it should be the other way around. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah, that's really fascinating. I wonder, uh, did you, did anything come up in your research if women have female doctors versus male doctors that there's Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. everybody asked me that. And I think it's an excellent question. First of all, when I started doing the research, it, it, the jury was sort of still out. Now I think I've done tried to do a little catch up, so to speak, and I think that 
I think female doctors may be better for women, but I really want to be careful when I say that. The first thing you want in a doctor is confidence. I mean, there's lemons in every profession. I don't care if you're a plumber, a hairdresser, or a doc. I mean, some people are more competent than others. So confidence is obviously critical. But And secondly, you want somebody that you like and that you feel likes you, because that way you will talk more, you will feel understood. And there's there's some real hard evidence that if you like your doctor and you feel your doctor likes you, that that does help your healing. You will heal more easily and more quickly. But Mm. the other thing I want to say, and let me think, is I guess what I want to say is that men and women doctors have different conversation styles, just like men and women patients. And a a male doctor is also more succinct, is also more businesslike. So your visit will be quicker than with Mm -hmm. a female doctor. So if you're on your lunch hour and you want to get in and get out, you need a male doctor. If you want a female doc, if you have a female doctor, they're more interested in relationship establishing. And if that's what's important to you, go for it. And now that I've said that, there's another caveat, which is I have a a male cardiologist who spends about 45 minutes to an hour with me. Think about that in today's world. Always wants to know how I'm doing. I mean, we talk about everything. It's lovely. I have a female doctor who says to me, how are you doing? And I go, fine. And she says, good. And we move right on. So, you know, these things are personal and individual. But yeah. basically, it's a matter of competence, understanding, and what you need. Uh-huh. What, what's the best fit for you? Are there resources you recommend for finding competent doctors? Is there a certain place you should look at their... Well, I do a couple of I'm actually in the middle of that right now. And I just was going to my own book this morning because there's some websites in there. And I frankly don't remember. I should should have been more prepared. And really, I'm embarrassed to say this, but what I did this morning, too, was go to Google. Uh And I said, doctors near me. Um, And I look at everybody's credentials and I look at how they're rated on Yahoo!, and I look at there's some there's a program called Dollars for Docs, and that will tell you how much money your doctor receives from pharmaceutical companies. So if he or she is receiving a lot of bucks, that's not the doctor I want to go to. But if they're trained at Harvard or Stanford or UCLA or wherever, um, and I want to know what hospital they're affiliated with. So I look at their education, their their customer ratings and those I depending how many ratings there are, I can, I mean, if there's five ratings, I don't really pay attention because maybe they have five kids who just, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I don't do that. But if there's a hundred ratings or a couple, then I, then I really do read it. Um, Mm -hmm. So education ratings, which is in a sense, customer service, I guess, Um, what, what hospital they're affiliated with, where they're located, although that for example, where I live, I don't think the medicine's very good. So I drive, you know, to the city, the bigger city, the near San Francisco, which is near me, or maybe Santa Rosa. I mean, since you're local too, you know where those are. Um, but I think it's really important to to check everything I just said. Right. And then you have to meet the person. You may like them, you may not. Yeah. Um, if you feel you can't talk to them or they're not listening, you know, get the heck out of there. I had another episode with a physician and I believe the title is should you fire your doctor for those listening? If you're interested, I'll link it in the show notes. I'll confirm the title. It was a long time ago, but she was basically saying a lot of what you're saying and that 
we should have more of an interview process with physicians before we go to them. And she's a physician herself. And she said that's what she does when she's seeking out her team of care and support. And we should not hesitate if we don't bond with somebody or if we don't like our first visit to essentially kind of fire our doctor if we feel like we've been misdiagnosed or we don't like the way our treatment plan is going and to move on to someone else. And similarly, she was saying, you know, we need to advocate for ourselves in that way and think that we're the one paying them. And maybe often we forget that you would fire a hairdresser, like you said, if they gave you a bad cut or you would fire someone else in your life who's not giving you quality service. And so we need to think of physicians the same way. Right. I think it's really important that the relationship is far more important than, frankly, I realized before I started my research. I used to say to myself, well, I didn't like this doctor, but, you know, I don't have to have her for dinner. It's, I just want her diet. Well, I was wrong. Yeah. That's my I was dead yeah. wrong. Dead may be the wrong word. Yeah. <laughs> We don't want to use that word in this conversation. No, no, no. What are some, just in your own way now of, you mentioned figuring out their competence, liking doctors, how do you approach appointments different or follow-ups from appointments different now after writing the book versus before? I do. I actually do. And there's, there are definitely some tips that, that we all should do. And I think before I discuss them for a minute, I think we have to know, or at least for my, I can only speak for myself, but I get very anxious when I go to the doctor and I don't always hear. And I, sometimes I do take somebody with me. Most of the time I don't because it, I mean, I'm not going to take somebody with me just for, to the, I don't know, but you know, if it's serious, I do. Yeah. Really what you want to do particularly if you're really worried or think that you might have something serious is write out your agenda. Don't, don't put it, don't leave it in your head, take a piece of paper, write it down. And what that will help you do. Number one is it helps you focus the interview because you won't forget what it is you wanted to bring up and it helps the doctor stay on track. So that way you get all your questions answered and the doctor knows that, that everything has been covered. So that's the first thing. The second thing is don't, whatever you do, introduce a new problem as the doctor is walking out, as she's walking out the door, because that's not fair. Um, you, you, had your, you have your appointment and you really want to make sure that you cover everything in there. The third thing that I think is really important, and I, I didn't know this again until I wrote the book, but only about 15% of women will tell the doctor when they don't understand something. That is not good. So what I sincerely recommend is that you rephrase, tell the doctor back in your own words what you heard them say. And that gives the doctor a chance to either confirm that you heard correctly or correct and you know what you didn't understand. I think that's mm-hmm. important because only if you understand can you go home and look up your research. You can't research something if you really don't follow what the doctor's saying. And the other thing that I do is I ask for the clinical name of whatever disease I have so that I can, and I have them write it out because I never, my spelling is sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, especially with medical terminology. Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. So I do that and that way I can go home and go to the Cleveland Clinic or Harvard or whatever I need to do to, to research that. And then the last thing I do that I think is a really important question, particularly if your symptoms are vague, like we were talking about earlier, I say, what else could this possibly be? I'd like to have 
for myself, I like to have a couple of diagnoses. And that way I can look up them both, see what I think fits. Maybe go if I do decide to get a second opinion, I can I can ask that the new doctor about both of those things. So I think that's an important question. That's what a else? brilliant question. I think so. I yeah. think so. I mean, yeah, that's that's fantastic, um, especially if you were to get a second opinion and then ask the same question. And maybe right. then you have five things that it could be. Right. Um, and so it might not be the most serious thing or it could be, but at least right. that probably helps with stress as well. But you don't want to go you don't want to undergo chemotherapy if you don't have cancer. I mean, and, yeah. and that's you know, that can happen. It does happen. So I, yeah. I think it's, you want to be sure. That's all I'm saying. I just keep going back to my leg because that was my most recent big thing. But I would take my husband with me to some follow-up appointments and his sole job, I had a list of questions and he would just right. be typing out a note in his phone of everything he heard. Right. And right. it's very true. We would leave the appointment and I would say, oh, I can't believe the doctor said X. And he'd say, no, no, no. He said this other thing. He said that, but also this other thing and something I had completely missed because I was right. thinking of part of what they were saying, but also getting ready to ask the next question. And so I was missing some things. I wonder, have you ever advised or tried yourself recording a conversation with the doctor? Are they open to that or no? I don't know. I never tried it. Okay. I really didn't. But what I do do now, I mean, because of, te- you know, electronic technology, you know, technology and all, is I go home and I read their summation of the interview and see if I missed anything. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've started taking, well, I took my husband with me, but he, since he's passed away, I'll take one of my daughters. Because um, mm-hmm. I, I, as I said earlier, I don't hear. And I'm sure, I, mean, I don't mean physically. I mean, you know. Well, I think not- that's very normal. I don't think right. most of us here. I think there's also research on that, that if you're in any conversation and you're right. constantly focusing on the next question you're going to ask, you miss part of what somebody's saying because you're preoccupying yep. your mind. No, absolutely. absolutely. And if you only have 15 minutes with a doctor, right. you're definitely trying to think about, okay, what's the next question I should ask? How should I frame this? And so I've got to get this in before the interview's up. Yeah. So I think those are really great tips. And I love, love the one of what else could this be? Yeah, um, I did too. When I read it, I thought, aha. Yeah. And you know, one of the questions, I, the the other one, the, the other question I really like is when, when you're prescribed drugs and, you know, you ask about the side effects and be sure you do, et cetera. And then the other question is, and what happens if I do nothing? Because that's a really important question. Sometimes, you know, a lot of diseases, not, not all, but a lot of diseases are self-limiting. And sometimes it's better for, for me, for example, I'm better off if I don't take something because I, I'm little and I'm sensitive to medication and the medication often may, I mean, it may cure the infection, but it also can make me feel worse than the, you know, the cure can be worse than the disease. So mm-hmm. sometimes I'll just do nothing mm-hmm. um, and it goes away. And I think that's especially important to ask if surgery is recommended. I do too. Because I do too. what happens if I do nothing? Maybe nothing happens. And there yeah. are so many complications. I mean, my previous surgery that I had, I had a bunionectomy years ago, and I ended up getting oh, a staph infection. Yeah. In my oh, foot. And so there was a series of, it was a four-month ordeal, and there were several follow-up surgeries. And so now people will ask, are you going to get more surgery on your feet? I mean, my feet are really messed up. And I'm like, I don't know, probably not. I'm just going to keep yeah. wearing these yeah. weird orthotic shoes and putting orthotics in my tennis, my sneakers. Sure. And so tennis. now 
right now I'm more geared towards what happens if I do nothing, just deal with it because I don't really want to go through that again. And so, like you said, sometimes the treatment, it's rare, but sometimes the treatment may be worse than the initial problem you're having. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'll I'll tell you a story about, well, it's really about research, I guess. But for for a little bit later, I guess a year or so ago, I had an arthritic thumb, or at least I decided I had a thumb, I had a pain in my thumb. So because I'm neurotic, I figured it was probably thumb cancer or something. So I went to... Of course, we all Google it and we all think that immediately. (laughs) I get anxious. (laughs) So I go to the doctor and she x-rayed, x-ray went to the hand doctor and she says, oh, you've got an arthritic thumb. I mean, which is certainly better than thumb cancer. So she gave me a whatever, some sort of drug for the pain. And, you know, I went home and I thought, well, you know, I better look this up. And, then, and I'm thinking to myself, don't bother. It's it's a pill. For, I mean, it's, it's a thumb pill. It's not going to kill you. But I looked it up and I'm on Lexapro for depression because I've recently lost my husband. And so apparently with this particular drug, there, most of the side effects were totally benign, but there's a 1% chance it can cause a brain bleed when mixed with Lexapro. And I'm thinking to myself, let's see, sore thumb, brain bleed. I think I'll skip it, thank you. And, of course, now my thumb is perfectly fine because these things are self-limiting and I must have sprained it or did something. I mean, who knows? But, I mean, so you really, I mean, I'm so glad I looked it up. I'd have taken the medication for nothing, maybe had a brain bleed, probably not. But if you're in the 1%. I mean, yeah. somebody is, right? I mean, 1% of people get a staph infection from a surgery, and I was right. the 1%. Of so course. if I right. see 1% now, that is yeah. not a rare number to me. I'm like, right. I'm the 1%. I'm the 1%. Yeah. And I thought, you know, my luck hasn't been so good lately. I think I'll just skip this. Thank you very much. You know? Right. No, I mean, that's... So many great examples, and I'm very grateful for all the wisdom you shared today. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Ah, The health investment, to me, is taking knowing your body, taking charge of your health. And as I said this several times in the interview, it's your body and your life. And remember the brain bleed, you know, it's really not worth taking risks because you were lazy and didn't get a second opinion or didn't have time to do your research, whatever. That's you, you want to take care of yourself. You have to be your own advocate. And I want women to really feel empowered and have the courage and the courage, I guess is what I want to say, to stand up for themselves and make sure that what they're doing for themselves is the very best thing that they could possibly do. Mm. That's a good message. Mm -hmm. I know everyone is going to want to connect with you off air and find your book. So what are the best places to do that? Oh my goodness. There's Amazon, any bookstore, they can, they either have it or can order it. You can go to susansalinger.com, which is my website. There's plenty of places to order it there. And Salinger is S-A-L-E-N-G-E-R. Don't misspell it. And that, otherwise you'll never find me. Yeah. So it's susansalinger.com. And you can order it almost or get it almost any place. Amazon has it, you know, of course Great. they do. It comes Great. in Kindle and paperback. I recommend the paperback because it's a resource. It's too hard to research, at least for me, it's too hard to research on a Kindle. Um, 
So it should be part of every woman's bookshelf, in my personal opinion. I agree. And I think, uh, you know, it's you can feel really at a loss if somebody near you is diagnosed with something and is embarking on a big medical crusade. And so this right. could be a really great gift book, too, right. of I want right. you to get the best care throughout this and check out this book and be sure you're asking the right questions. And just what a great resource for women to have. It is absolutely. And, and I was somebody told me and they're right. It's for men, too, in the sense that everybody has a wife, a mother, a sister, a partner, a girlfriend, a, you know, a daughter, whatever. I mean, we right. all have, you know. And so. I think just as I mentioned, having my husband just squash my fear of emailing the doctor right. and just saying, that's his job. Just do it. Right. And right. so even if a man hears this and understands, OK, just saying something quick like that to my wife or daughter or somebody before they go to the doctor of just remember to advocate for yourself and ask for a second opinion. And, you know, don't right. worry about it. This is their job. That alone, that one sentence could be so helpful. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks again so much for being here. I have loved talking to you and Thank I look you. forward to sharing this episode with my audience and staying connected with you off air. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.